Last week, we left off in the middle of a good interrogation. I love a good interrogation. That's what I did for about 25 years. It's not like you think. You think of all the hollering and browbeating and the bright lights. Most of mine were very calm, reasoned, compassionate, and that's how you get people to talk to you. Get them to like you a little bit. You don't have to like them, but you need to pretend you do for a little while. Some of the stuff they do is terrible, just like what Gehazi did here and in the verses we studied last week. If you'll remember, Gehazi had left the house, gone after filthy lucre, and returned with it. And you can go back and review that lesson if you weren't here or didn't tune in last week. Thinking Elisha knew no better, Gehazi lied to the man of God. He said, where'd you go? And Gehazi said, I didn't go anywhere. And we're going to see the answer that Elisha gave him to that ridiculous response. Verse 26, we are in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 26. Now this is Elisha's answer to Gehazi. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee? When the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee. Now you may remember that scene in the prior verses when Gehazi ran after the chariot Naaman was in, supposing to take from him those things he had offered to Elisha and which Elisha refused. And that's the moment that Elisha is referring to right here. He continues, Elisha, now admonishing Gehazi, he said, Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and oliveyards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maidservants? Now, I would have fainted if I were Gehazi. If I, just like you did, Of course, I never did this, but just like you did when you told your mother you were somewhere that you weren't and you found out that she knew better all the time, you fainted or you wished you would have fainted. Not only did Elisha know that Gehazi went somewhere, it was like he was there when the whole thing happened. And I want you to notice that Elisha's interrogation of Gehazi here was done with two questions from this point on. The first question was, Went not mine heart with thee? Now that's in the form of a question. You didn't know interrogations often consisted of questions. In other words, Elisha said his heart, his inner man, his spirit went with Gehazi, not his literal heart, but in spirit, in the sense that he knew where Gehazi went, why he went, and what he was up to. And only God could give Elisha the ability to know that. So though that's unwritten, the unwritten part to me is very plain. Elisha was not a mind reader, only God is. In John chapter 1, verses 47 through 48, and I neglected to send my verses to Brother Rick and Tony, 
And I thought about it this morning as I walked into the church and shame overtook me. And I said, I dare not give them this assignment right before Sunday school. So I'll just bear in my body the marks of my negligence. Went not mine heart with thee. Now this verse in John chapter 1 verses 47 through 48 will give you a clue as to how it was Elisha knew when and where and up to what uh, Gehazi was. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. It's like Jesus was there. Because he was in spirit, but not physically. He was there because he fills heaven and earth. And there's nowhere man can hide from him. And when he chooses to reveal to one of his prophets where somebody is or what they were doing, then that's no strange thing. He does that in the Word of God. And it ought to remind us over and over, especially if you're in sin, if you've backslidden, that God knows where you are and he knows why you're here or why you're not here and what you did and what you're doing and what you're going to do about it. He already knows all that. And I believe some people think, well, if I don't go to church, then nobody will ever know what I'm up to. But remember, God will. God will always know. He'll know if your excuse was worthwhile or not, won't he? Genesis 8, verse 21. Genesis 8, verse 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. He said this after the flood. God said this in his heart. He knew the imagination of man's heart. He knew what was in man's heart. So only God knows what's in your heart, your inner man, which is what the word signifies here in the Old Testament. And for Elisha to know that Gehazi was doing what he was doing and where he was without being there was something for which God gave Elisha the ability. Now you may have said or we may say to someone, I know what you're thinking. And actually we can't read people's minds, but with some people we have such a kindred spirit that we, it's like we know. And we don't read people's minds, but we do listen to what they say and how they say it or what they don't say, what their body language does. And it gives us a clue, and that's what a good interrogator does. He listens and he looks. But Elisha had a great advantage over the average interrogator. He had God, and he had the power of God on him. Now, the second question Elisha used in this interrogation was, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and oliveyards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servant and maid servants? Now this is amazing. 
All Gehazi had asked for from Naaman was one talent of silver and two changes of garments. Naaman had a whole lot more with him that he planned to give to Elisha in exchange for being cleansed of his leprosy. Elisha turned it all down, so we suppose Naaman had it all with him to take back to Syria. He had not, think about this, Gehazi had not asked for oliveyards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maidservants. He didn't ask for any of those things, just the silver and the two changes of garments. So why then would Elisha ask, is it a time to receive these things too? Why didn't he just say, Gehazi, is it a time to receive silver and two changes of clothing? But he went on with this long list of things that he never asked for. Well, the reason he did that is God revealed to him what was in Gehazi's heart. The real reason Gehazi coveted the silver and the changes of clothing. It was not to give them to the two sons of the prophets whom Gehazi said were coming from Mount Ephraim to Samaria because there were no such sons of the prophets coming that way. It was so Gehazi could enrich himself. That's why he hid that stuff out of Elisha's sight, hoping Elisha would not know about it. It was so he could rich, enrich himself perhaps by selling those items of clothing, which were, I'm sure, very fine articles of clothing if they came from the king of Syria. And that silver exchanging it for these things, these oliveyards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and servants... Now listen, the silver and the clothing are not evil to give or evil to get. But what was it that Elisha said? He said, is it time? Is this the time to do that? It's not that there's never a time. Is, is it this the time to do that? So they're not evil to give or evil to get. But the motive Gehazi had for getting those things was evil. And God knew it and he revealed that to Elisha. And to deceive the giver, Naaman, by saying the gifts were for the sons of the prophets who came from Mount Ephraim made this sin all the more despicable. The interrogation consisted of two questions. Went not mine heart with thee? And the answer to that one was yes. Elisha's heart did go with Gehazi as we ex explained and the answer to the second question was no. It is not the time to receive money and garments and men servants and maid servants and oliveyards and vineyards and sheep and oxen. Now he's in trouble, isn't he? Verse 27, Elisha continues. The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. The leprosy, therefore, of Naaman shall cleave unto thee. That's a severe punishment, isn't it? But it's fitting. One who thought that the cleansing of leprosy 
should be paid for with money ought to have that leprosy cling to him. And one who thinks the cleansing of the sinner should have to be paid for with money should have the uncleanness of that sinner cling to him because he's an unbeliever. And he further went on to say, And unto thy seed forever. The first part of the punishment seemed fitting, easy to understand. Kind of an eye for an eye thing. But this part, why would Naaman's or Gehazi's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren and so on be sentenced to the uncleanness of leprosy? And a place like this is where we have to look at God's perfect foreknowledge of all events, of all things, of all things people will do and who they will become. Does God know who will repent and believe and who will refuse the gospel? He sure does. We don't. So when it comes to what we believe should happen to man in the future or what will happen to someone's children or grandchildren when they are born is based on, at worst, speculation and at best, partially informed information. We never have all the facts, do we? But God does. And he bases his reasoning on his perfect foreknowledge of the past, present, and future. You know, there was probably someone when Adolf Hitler was born a little baby. He was, if you can forget what you know about him, it's hard to do. He was probably a cute little boy, probably had a full head of black hair. And I'm sure his mother and father or whoever it was was around when he was born and as a little child thought, well, how cute. And yet God was the only one who knew in his perfect foreknowledge that a few decades later, this would become one of the, or he would become to the world, he was already evil. He would become to the world one of the most evil people ever known. And when he became that, many in this world would have hoped for his death his execution, for him to be tried for his crimes and executed. But only God knew from the beginning what he would become. Just like he knows from the beginning what Gehazi's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren would become. They would have the disease of leprosy cling to them. Does that mean none of them would become Christians? No. But if they were Christians, they would be Christians who had leprosy. Is this a harsh sentence? Yes. Is it just? Yes. Gehazi had the opportunity to believe in the grace of God. But instead, he chose the justice of God, didn't he? How about you? Do you want God to be just with you? Or gracious to you. You know he can be both. He was just in that he put our sins upon Jesus Christ. Who paid that just payment. And he did that because he's gracious. And we apply that by faith. If you're yet in your sins. And you believe there is some way for you to be accepted. 
by God other than believing in the record he gave of his son. If you believe you've got to, to pay silver and garments and all of that to receive that cleansing, then spiritually speaking, the leprosy of Naaman cleaves to you. So will you be as Naaman, washed white as snow? Or will you be as Gehazi, unclean and leprous as snow? It is a choice. Now we go from this to chapter 6 and a new story, a new passage. So let's look at verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Straight means narrow, but did you know the word is more often translated as the word enemy? Isn't that a surprise? The idea here is that two things or two people cannot abide with each other in the same place, whether they're enemies or whether they're just in a narrow place. Why, if two broad-shouldered fellows like Brother Fulton and I were to go through the same door together, we'd get stuck. So one of us has to give preference to the other and say, well, you go first. Because the place is too straight for us, we cannot dwell there together and both get through the door. And at this point, we don't know why these sons of the prophets would say such a thing. Elisha had not complained about the place being too straight, had he? Just these sons of the prophets. And these aren't the most spiritually mature people. We've come across them before. And they're not, they impress me about as much as the average church leader or the average religious convention today. Verse 2, here's what their request was. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make a, us a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. A beam is a large log, and you might picture that as the foundation with which someone would build a house. If they were going to make a, a roof or a pier and beam sort of foundation, but it lets us know, in fact, it's translated as the word roof four times. It lets us know they want to relocate and build their own place. And to all that, Elisha said, go ahead. <laughs> you guys want to leave? We're not going to stop you. You know, somebody uh, came to me in this church, especially if it was somebody who's not very faithful and said, well, I think we're just going to leave. Well, I probably wouldn't be crass and say, well, then leave. I'd, I'd like to know why, and uh, normally it's a carnal reason, but whatever the reason is, Elisha told him, go. Verse 3, and one said, now this is one of the sons of the prophets, one said to Elisha, be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. Isn't that something? One of the sons of the prophets had a little bit of sense and said, hey, now, we're not sure why the other sons of the prophets wanted to move away from Elisha, especially when the power of God was on him. I can tell you this, I want to be where God is working, wherever that is. And I believe it's right here. Yeah, I don't believe it's somewhere else. And if it is, God will show me that. But I want to be where God's working. 
I want to be a part of a ministry or ministries where he's showing himself mighty, where he's saving people and discipling converts and using his people to do the work he's called the church to do. And in the midst of the sons of the prophets, there's one who said to Elisha, go with thy servants. In other words, come with us. And that man realized the benefit of having Elisha with them. This man wasn't interested in going off somewhere with these sons of the prophets and making a name for themselves, starting a church of a different denomination. He was interested, I think by implication, he was interested in the power of God being displayed in the midst of wherever it was he was working and wherever it was he lived. And when church members and leaders get less concerned with being recognized for their work, they will be more likely to recognize God for his work. That's what we do. When we thank God, when we pray, not just on Wednesday nights, but when we pray throughout the week, and I hope you do this, spend a whole lot of time thanking God for what he's done. If you're an I want, you know that's a little bit down the list, especially if for carnal things. But... Thanking God ought to be right there at the top. Recognizing God for his work. Now verses 4 through 5, let's read them together. I'll read them together and then comment. So he went with them, and when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. But as one was felling a beam, now that means he chopped a tree and it fell down. As one was felling a beam... The axe head fell into the water, and he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. In the midst of cutting wood to build their houses, a borrowed axe head was accidentally slung into the water. If you've ever used an old wooden axe, not the composite kind you buy it, Home Depot or Walmart, but an old wooden axe. The handle's wooden. The, the head of it is iron. You know that the top of that axe handle goes through a hole in the body of the axe blade, or the, the head we call it. And to keep that axe head from slipping off of the handle, you drive a metal wedge, an iron wedge, kind of like a nail, down into that wood. And it spreads that wood apart, and it makes a real tight fit for that axe head so that you can confidently swing that thing without worrying about what happened right here, the axe head going into the water. But from time to time, you have to do some maintenance on the axe because what happens after all of those blows you strike to the wood it starts to loosen a little bit, and you can feel it. You pick the axe up, and that, that head will wobble, and you'll think, well, it'll be all right today, and well, it'll be all right tomorrow. And the next thing you know, that axe handle is awful light because there's not an axe head on it anymore. Or you can just use the chainsaw and forget I ever told you this story. That's fine with me. But I'm just trying to teach you the Bible. The word axe head, the words axe head, are normally translated as the word iron. So this was an iron axe head, 
And iron does not float in water, does it? By itself, minus anything that causes it to be buoyant. The text tells us it was borrowed. And this tells us a little bit about the lumberjack who was using it. He didn't say, ah, that's no big deal. That wasn't mine anyway, so it's in the water. I'll just borrow another one. That's what some people do. It upset him because now he had lost a borrowed axe head. And I like a character of a person like that who considers something they borrow as their very own until they return it to you. They take care of it as their very own. Now, there are some people who don't take care of their very own stuff very well. I don't want them to borrow any of my tools. Let's look now at verse 6. And the man of God said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place. And he, that's Elisha, cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim, or it floated. If there was no other reason Elisha came along on this trip, it was to do this mighty thing right here. To take a situation that was impossible and bring forth a solution. In man's eyes... An axe head being lost in the Jordan River, which I assume this is what water they were talking about. An axe head lost in the Jordan River could never be found. They didn't have the fancy diving equipment and sonar and all that. Somebody would have had to go out into the river, and depending on what time of year it was, that thing could have been in flood stage with a swift current sweeping that axe head down burying it in sediment or trees or whatever. So it was an impossible thing. Not only was it, would it sink, but it would be washed downstream. That axe head would be hopelessly lost. But with God, all things are possible. And through Elisha's act, God taught the sons of the prophets a greater lesson than the retrieving of an axe head. He taught them that what man loses, only God can truly restore. It's true of our sin, isn't it? Which, as the weight of the axe head plunges us into the depths of condemnation. Sin never lifts us up. It doesn't cause us to swim. It causes us to drown. And this life, this breath that we Borrow from God just as this man borrowed the axe head from its owner. Cannot be reclaimed by our own efforts. And we, just as this son of the prophet, exclaim, alas, master. Every time God uses a tree or a stick or a bough to restore something that was broken or lost or ruined... I think of that tree upon which hung our Savior, Jesus, who restored unto us that which condemned us, that which had doomed us to be cast down to hell in the lake of fire. In Exodus chapter 15, Moses cast a tree into the bitter waters of Marah because the children of Israel could not drink it. You might say there was death in the waters and no matter what man did, even Moses, they could not change those bitter waters to sweet. 
Yet Moses, by the power of God, cast that tree into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And in our text, another tree, which is called a stick, it's the same Hebrew word, it's translated stick or tree, another tree, a stick, is used to cause a lost axe head to float, that it may be recovered again and restored, redeemed to its owner. In verse 7, therefore said he, now this is again Elisha saying this to the son of the prophet, therefore said he, take it up to thee. That is the axe head. And he put out his hand and he took it. Don't miss this. Just as the children of Israel had to drink of those sweet waters at Marah to reap the benefit of that miracle, this son of the prophet had to take the floating axe head unto himself. It's not enough that the axe head floated to the top. It had to be seized. It had to be taken. Can you imagine if this son of the prophet had gone to his owner, the owner or the owner of the axe, and said, Hey, guess what? I lost your axe head in the Jordan River. But I have great news. A great man, a prophet of God, threw a tree into the water, and he caused that lost axe head to be redeemed, to float. And let's say the rightful owner of the axe head said, Well, great, I'll take it from you then. But the foolish son of the prophet said, Oh, I didn't take it unto myself. I just wanted to tell you about the work that had been done. It was quite a miracle. It was quite a spectacle. But I didn't take it unto myself. How foolish would that have been? Yet there are many who know about a tree that God used to redeem mankind, who, like that axe head, was lost and without hope of being redeemed. You might say we were sunk. And those people will say, oh yes, I I believe Jesus died for sinners. They believe the historical fact. And one day I'll put my trust in him, but not now. They don't want to grab the floating axe head they're just content to let it float and to not seize it listen the devil knows about the floating axe head that was redeemed also he knows about the tree upon which hung the savior of the world and which sealed his doom and he knows that all who refuse to take that tree what was done there unto themselves will remain lost and go into the lake of fire with his fallen angels and him. Now, we come to another passage, another story. Have you ever heard someone say, well, the Bible's boring? Well, I'm going to tell you, they haven't read the Bible. I would venture to say most people who claim to be Christians have never read the whole Bible. And most have certainly never studied it or tried to study it. But even if people who say that would read only the stories of Elijah and Elisha, they would find all kinds of excitement and unusual events. We've already read some. And that seems to be what the flesh wants. 
But the spiritual truths in these passages are so rich and so profound. Yes, they are exciting. But what's more exciting than the physical, physical accounts of these stories is what we learn about God and how he deals with mankind. And having read the verse before, let's uh, look at verse 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. Let's think about the last interaction Syria and Israel, or Samaria, had. The leader of their army, Naaman, was healed of his leprosy, and he went on his way rejoicing. And Syria repays this kindness with a declaration of war against Israel. How do you like that? Syria's king, in this verse, told his servants where his own campsite was going to be. Verse 9, And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for the, thither the Syrians are come down. So just as the king of Syria told his servants where his campsite would be, Elisha told the king of Israel, Don't pass such a place. Don't go down there. Now you might shake your head and say, Wait a minute, how did he know that? Same way he knew what Gehazi was doing and why. God revealed it to him. Unbeknownst to the king of Syria, Elisha, by the power of God, knew what the king's words were as soon as he spoke them. He probably knew them before he spoke them, but he at least knew them as soon as he spoke them. And using that knowledge given to him by the Lord, Elisha warned the king of Israel not to go to that place. And I believe you could rightfully conclude that the campsite of the king of Syria would be the most heavily guarded by the best soldiers in the Syrian army. I think that would be a, militarily, would be a logical conclusion. Verse 10, And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. Now, what a foolish thing to do. What did Elisha tell him? He said, don't go there. Don't pass there. And so the king of Israel said, okay, well, we're going to go down there. I'm going to send somebody down there. He just, Elisha just told him, don't do that. But just as the sons of the prophets, the king of Israel was not a spiritual giant either. He was, he was a weak king, spiritually speaking. The fact that he sent a scout to this place tells us he was not completely confident in Elisha's words. He had to double check. It appears he did that more than twice because the text says at the end of verse 10, not once nor twice, so it had to be thrice or more, didn't it? What were Elisha's words? Beware that thou pass not such a place. What were the orders of the king? Go down there and check it out. As much as God had shown himself true and mighty through Elisha, why could this king, this Israel king, not just take Elisha's word for it? It's the same reason people don't take God at his word today. 
mankind is a sinful lot. The flesh is contrary to the will of God. It's contrary to the spiritual man if you're a Christian. That's why we're going to be shed of that old flesh when we receive our new bodies. Nevertheless, when the scout or the scouts went to this place more than two times, what they learned there kept the king of Israel from falling into the Syrian king's traps. Now, how much easier would it have been just to listen to Elisha and stay home? He had already told them where the Syrian king's camp was. Does the king of Israel not think Elisha could also tell him if the Syrians were about to attack and where and what to do about it? He could have saved his time, his money, and just put his faith in what Elisha said, which is what God revealed to him. Verse 11, therefore, that is because the king of Israel saved himself, therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, he thought he had a spy in the camp, one of his people. Somebody knew his plan of attack ahead of time. So he reasoned that there must be a spy giving intelligence to Israel. Some of you may be baseball fans. In baseball, a catcher will use his fingers to signal to the pitcher what pitch he wants him to throw. And it's usually called from the dugout. They're all... If you've ever watched a baseball coach give signs, man, it's a dance. I mean, they've got this going on, and everything they do is part of a sign. And there are signs that say cancel everything before this. It's, it's complex. I could probably spend an hour telling you about it, and you wouldn't be any better for it spiritually. But the signals are very basic for the pitch. One's a fastball, two's a curve, three is a slider, and four is a changeup. And if a base runner wants to steal second base, he would like to do it on a slower pitch, like a curveball or a changeup. It gives him more time to run. He doesn't want to run on a fastball because he's more likely to get thrown out. So he and his team, the base runner and his team, try to figure out which pitch the pitcher is going to throw by doing what we call stealing their signs. And really all you're doing is observing. But in baseball, there's an ethical uh, assignment given to that. It's called stealing signs. And this is done by studying all sorts of things, what the catcher does with his fingers, how the pitcher positions his shoulders or turns his feet. It's quite a science, and it's impressive. And once a team is able to steal the signs from the catcher, not only can the base runner get a heads up on when to steal a base, but the hitter can be more certain about what pitch is coming. If a hitter knows a fastball's coming, he knows that whatever plane that ball is on, that's where he needs to swing to make contact with that pitch. But if he thinks it's a fastball and it's a curveball, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to swing over the top of that pitch. If it's a changeup, he's going to swing too early. All right, that's enough baseball talk. 
Now, can you imagine if a baseball team had a spy? Let's say the Texas Rangers were uh, a player in the New York Yankees, or a Texas Rangers had a New York Yankee spy in their dugout. He was a Rangers player. He might be a second base or a backup catcher. And every time the Rangers called for a certain pitch, somehow the Yankees knew about it because that spy was signaling from the dugout, giving something like this. That would be devastating to the Rangers, wouldn't it? And very helpful to the Yankees. Verse 12, and one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king. In other words, the answer to the question is, king of Syria, there is nobody in the dugout who is spying for Israel. It's not happening. None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel, he's in the other dugout, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. The Syrian king thought he had a Yankee spy in his dugout, but it was God who knows and hears and sees all things. And it was God who was signaling the Syrian signs to the Israelites through his prophet, Elisha. Now, the Syrian king is without excuse. He should have known about Elisha. He was foolish to declare war on Israel. And after all, he sent Naaman to Elisha to be healed from the leprosy. And he surely watched Naaman return, having been cleansed from that awful disease that was impossible in the eyes of man. And not only did Elisha not hide, but God determined that his whereabouts would be made known to the Syrian king. Let's look at verse 13 where that happens. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And behold, it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. In other words, you don't have to go spy out and see where he is. He's in Dothan. He's sitting there waiting on y'all. He's not afraid. Verse 14, Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about Imagine such a great company of soldiers and chariots coming for one man. Kind of like they did for the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden. All of that band that came to arrest one man. And the Syrian king was arrogant enough to think he could just go to Dothan, kidnap Elisha, and return home. But he was also wary enough to know he better take a large military force with him in case something goes wrong. In verse 15, and we'll have to close, and, the servant, and when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with chariot, horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? The name of the servant of Elisha is not named here. I wondered if it was Gehazi, the leper, or if somebody took his place. I suspect somebody took his place because he was no longer a trusted servant. And in fear from what this servant saw, he said to Elisha, Alas, kind of like the man did who lost the axe head in the river, in the water. He said, Alas, my master, how shall we do? That's also translated in other translations as, What shall we do? In East Texas, it's, now what are we going to do? 
Makes sense, doesn't it? What are we going to do when the enemy compasses us about as this Syrian army did at Dothan? Next week we'll look at the answer to that question. Any questions or comments about the lesson? And you're always free to put those on Facebook or to come up after church and ask me. I'll be happy to explain them to you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for people who love your word and for your spirit who teaches us through, our, uh, through your servants whom you've called. And though we're weak in the flesh, Lord, we're mighty because the power of God rests upon us to do that which you've called us to do. And we're so thankful for what we've learned and pray that we would continue and to the next service to have that learning spirit about us and to not be distracted by the cares of this world because they are many and they are overwhelming. So help us to look heavenward to the word of God and to, that Jesus would be high and lifted up in our midst because he's the only solution to our problems. It's in his name we pray.